listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers from faith leaders to academics to artists to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And this evening, we're celebrating our 100th show. So instead of a guest, I wanted to take the opportunity to reflect on our first 100 shows and to share some of what I have learned so far. Of course, with 50 hours of conversation, there's no way I can reflect on them all in under 30 minutes. So this evening, I'll just touch on some of the many things that I have learned and hope that you might listen to all the previous shows and see what you learn from them. Over the last 100 shows, we have highlighted essential social justice issues like homelessness, education, the environment, domestic violence, mental health, addiction recovery, reproductive rights and peacemaking. We've highlighted organisations such as the Interfaith Community Shelter, Youth Works, Youth United for Climate Change Action, Tomorrow's Women, the Esperanza Shelter for Victims of Domestic Violence, the Sky Center and the New Mexico Suicide Intervention Project. And by asking questions, we've also explored what scripture and authority, nature, gender, God, the role of religion and much more might mean to us. One of the questions about religion that kept resurfacing throughout these shows is who has the authority to interpret traditional texts? In some faith traditions, it seems that the clergy are solely responsible for interpretation of the text, and in other, more liberal faith communities, there is a communal process of interpretation in which clergy and laity work together to determine what God wants of us. For example, Presbyterian Reverend Harry Ebbets spoke of the authority of finding God essentially through committee, which means that God, and therefore scripture, is in some sense dynamic. The challenge of a process of interpretation as opposed to divine dictates by a clergy member from on high is trying to establish what is the will of God and what is actually something the individual or the group is projecting onto God. Reverend Blaine Wimberley spoke of the Methodist concept of the quadrilateral through which we determine what God wants of us through not just scripture but through reflection on four areas scripture, tradition, reason and experience. In that show, Reverend Blaine said that we tend to lean on reason and experience and that God gives us a brain and expects us to use it. To Reverend Blaine, as with a number of guests on the show, the biblical narrative isn't a scientific or historical document and was never intended to be. In fact, to those guests, turning the Bible into a scientific or historical account almost did violence to the original intention of the text, which was to describe the developing encounter with God. And there were definitely guests who saw scripture as the inerrant word of God, though, and it certainly seemed that those who did were also heavily invested in a top-down approach of religious authority. And that, that's to say, I've found in the last 100 shows that those who believe that the word of God is clear or inerrant have tended to also be those who, whose religious communities are hierarchical. 
Not coincidentally, those who are invested in a top-down religious authority structure have on this show often spoken using very male-centered terms of God, whereas those who have tended to be more inclusive in their interpretation of scripture have tended to be more inclusive in terms of gender. Thus, Father Robin Dodge explained that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that in his Episcopalian community they take it very seriously as authoritative, saying that all things necessary for salvation are in the Bible, although not everything in the Bible is necessary for salvation. But I was struck by his particularly gendered metaphors of God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which is language that a number of Christian guests on this show addressed, although certainly not all. For example, for example, Pastor Joanne Hare from Christ Lutheran Church asked, The Holy Spirit is she stirring within us? In what I found to be a very revealing and helpful conversation, when I asked Father Robin if religious language is metaphor to describe the indescribable, why any community would continue to use predominantly masculine metaphors, his answer that they are historical and traditional was revealing because it seemed to be intimately connected with a patriarchal top-down structure of authority. One guest who specifically challenged that patriarchal structure was Father Antropiano, who was ordained as a Catholic priest and therefore was immediately excommunicated because of her gender. To Father Anne, church doctrine developed based on a feudal system overseeing parcels of land with priests underneath for each parish. And to her, liberal inclusive church doctrine was taken over by the Roman Empire, a theme I'll be returning to later. To Father Anne, the suppression of women in the development of the early church, where she said women were originally priests, bishops and deacons, was an important reflection of authority and male domination. She said that interpretation of scripture has clearly changed. For example, the Catholic Church used to say that there was no truth outside itself, and it also used to endorse slavery and can therefore change again, but she felt that the male-dominated structures of the church have made new interpretations difficult. Indeed, Father Anne was the only guest who spoke about their faith tradition even banning conversation on some issues, such as women priests. Listeners to that first show with Father Anne will remember how shocked I was for a faith community to ban conversation about anything. This phenomenon of top-down religion in which authoritative interpretation tends to be given by men is not just something present in Christian communities. For example, Orthodox Rabbi Ron Wittenstein also spoke in similar terms about scripture and its authority. Over these past 100 shows, I've perhaps learned of the emotional and spiritual appeal of both top-down and also bottom-up interpretive structures. On the one hand, when we're told what to believe, what a text means, and even what we can and cannot discuss, there's an appealing simplicity to that religious system that allows for clarity, even if it perhaps limits change. It certainly makes being religious easier, because in such a structure, one is told what to believe, and in a chaotic, ever-changing world, I can definitely see why that would be appealing for so many people. On the other hand, a bottom-up interpretive structure, which has tended to be present in more guests on this show, introduces the discomforting possibility of doubt and also of potential accusations of creating God in our own image. Potential criticism aside, this bottom-up religious approach has allowed for diversity of interpretation, development in religious thought and practice, and perhaps most importantly, has respected the voice of laity as valid. So both top-down and bottom-up can be very comforting, and I think that I've learned that our level of comfort with each structure depends on how we view God. 
If we view God as being clear on matters, thou shalt or thou shalt not, then I can understand why a religious structure that speaks clearly and authoritatively on religious matters would be attractive. If, however, one views God differently, one is more likely to be comforted by a religious community in which questions are not only welcomed but embraced and in which authority is not likely to be top-down. I know in response to that statement, someone from a top-down religious community might say, but the Bible is full of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. But what I'm talking about here is what is commanded, not the act of commanding itself. In fact, I would say much of what people say is commanded in the Bible, which I can speak from, from my own faith tradition, really isn't commanded at all. An obvious example being people saying the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not kill. When it clearly doesn't say that, because it also instructs the people in capital punishment and in going to war, what it actually says is, thou shalt not murder. And that takes us back to what Pastor Tiago Ajais said in his first show, that we all bring assumptions to our faith traditions. And an essential element of being a person of faith is to be aware of our preconceived notions as we approach text. In some faith communities, there's clearly an assumption that God is on high, lording over us. Whereas in others, God is present within us and around us as friend or companion or even lover. And some faith communities try to fuse the two. In terms of being open to doubt, Reverend Talitha Arnold quoted Nikos Kazantzakis, the author of Zorba the Greek, to say, What is God but the search for God? Eastern Orthodox Father John Bethencourt appeared twice on the show to share his understanding of that search, a more mystical, less legalistic and less rationalistic form of search than many other guests shared. Father John spoke of the transrational, of that which is above reason, not to denigrate reason, but to also ensure that we are not only bound to reason. To Father John, the West tends to pit one thing against another, whereas his understanding of orthodoxy is that, to use his words, orthodoxy is paradoxy. It is, he said, only a legalistic Western mindset that pits one thing against the other, and that Western religion is like prescriptive Newtonian physics, whereas Eastern religion tends to be more like new physics. To Father John, the search for the noetic transrational realm meant transcending praxis and natural contemplation and being more open to contradiction in religious language that is by necessity limited in describing the indescribable. Father John's search was to be in theosis, which he described with the rather lovely word in Godid. Elder Kathy Sanchez from Tewa Women United spoke repeatedly of Mother Earth. Indeed, perhaps of all guests, her faith perspective was the most radically imminent and egalitarian. To Elder Kathy, all things living and non-living have the ability to give life. And she, like Father John, spoke of the difference between Western science and Native American science. The former, she explained, was violent and led to a culture of violence against the self and the other while the latter carried a stronger sense of infused spirituality and rootedness. Elder Cathy spoke of how we in the West are groomed to be messengers of violence in a parasitical culture of control and manipulation. To Elder Cathy, the act of proselytization was an act of violence that failed to celebrate difference, and her understanding of reciprocity, that once you have given, you are already blessed, was deeply challenging to Western norms. 
And all of this has reminded me of the Jewish concept of Tinok Shinishpa, which is a concept of the stolen baby. And the idea, which first came from the Orthodox community, is that we are all stolen babies. We're all stolen into the society into which we are born. We are all raised within a narrative, an interpretive structure, which shapes the way we think and the way we view opinions that are different to ours. How open we are to learn from others and to challenge our own interpretive structure is already built into the way we are raised, and it requires a great amount of mental fortitude and perhaps generosity of spirit to be open to learning and changing. And in some sense, this show has developed over time into a celebration of those who enjoy learning from others. There have been guests who have been deeply embedded in systems of authority and who have spoken on behalf of their religious institution and what it believes, and there have been guests who have spoken on behalf of their own personal religious experience while being embedded in a religious community. And I've come to realise that many guests have, through their words, answered an unasked question, where is God? For many, as I mentioned before, God is on high, lording over us all, whereas for others, God is with us, within us, or among us. And the ways that religious communities are structured certainly seems to often be an answer to that question, where is God? Pastor Tiago, again, spoke of the God of the Bible always pointing to relationship. So his community, as with some others, is set up in a way to help members find God's image in the face of the other. As he said, behind a smile and a face, there is a universe and a human being that is carrying within themselves the image of God. And that is a God of relationship, of love, not a God who necessarily commands. Similarly, Unitarian Universalist Reverend Gail Mariner spoke of each of us being created in the likeness of God with the capacity within ourselves to recognize and understand the holy. It's no surprise then that authority in her community is found in the gathered community. On the other hand, I also spoke with guests like Krishna Kalsa Singh and Imam Ibrahim Habash, who both tended to speak in absolute terms rather than relative terms, once again demonstrating that guests who spoke in terms of absolutes strongly tended to come from faith traditions in which patriarchal authority was assumed. And that's not to say that there is no value in what they spoke about, of course not. Indeed, I had a lot of sympathy for Krishna Kalsa Singh's perspective on the need to tame the ego without destroying it, and also for Imam Ibrahim's perspective of religion needing to be merciful. So it wouldn't be totally fair to always relate these authority structures to theology then. Certainly, Krishna Kalsa Singh explained how Sikhism was not even a religion, but a way of life. But perhaps before the break, though, I, I believe I can comment on trends. So far among our guests, there has been a tendency for some to reinforce patriarchal authority and for some to specifically work against it, and that those who spoke in an authoritative voice tend to have more hierarchical communities which speak in absolutes, while those who have more egalitarian communities tended to speak of multiple truths. Or put another way, I can say that I've often seen that hierarchical faith communities tend to trust male authority, quote dogma as answers, fear their members' divergence from dogma, and see God as a male figure. Whereas more egalitarian faith communities tend to question patriarchy, ask more questions than provide answers, celebrate their members for who they are and what they bring, and are not necessarily bound to male God language. 
Although my community of Temple Beth Shalom is a progressive, inclusive space, I am not saying that more hierarchical communities are wrong. I'm just finding myself more challenged theologically and socially by people from such communities. A question perhaps to consider then is how much patriarchal religious communities are a reflection of larger social patriarchal structures? And how much do they reinforce and perpetuate those patriarchal structures? From my own perspective, while Judaism was originally a deeply patriarchal religion, Reform Judaism, which has existed for 200 years, has tried passionately to achieve egalitarianism by lifting women in clergy leadership roles and by reassessing patriarchal language and governance in our community. As a Reformed Jew, I believe that we see God through a variety of religious lenses and that no one faith tradition has access to the truth. But rather, as my wife, Rabbi Jenny Goldfried Amswich, would say, the search for God is like a child's journey to school. Some will walk, some will go by car, some by bus, and while we all aim for the same final destination, our ways to get there might differ. And perhaps this show has been, in some sense at least, an exploration of the differing journeys that we all take to approach the same place. We need to pause for a moment. But after the break, I'm going to reflect on what some guests have shared about the role of religion, about nature, and more. And so you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. And this evening for our 100th show, I'm sharing some of what I have learned so far in nearly 50 hours of conversation with faith leaders, artists and academics. And it is, of course, impossible to summarize 50 hours of conversation in 30 minutes. But I do want to at least mention the special contribution of artists to this show, such as musician David Barclay, composer Janice Simmons, artist Judy Tuolet-Siwa, rap artist Alexander Starr. And we've also been blessed with poets and tutors like Maggie McGuinness and Sarah Davis. And what these and other guests have often brought is a profound spirituality that falls outside of a traditional religious framework. And that's been profoundly revealing to me as a congregational rabbi. I have sometimes in the past been critical of those who call themselves spiritual but not religious for using religious language in a non-religious setting and then saying that they're not religious. But these guests revealed a profound, profound sense of connection to otherness. It was more grounded in personal experience than in communal experience, which is where many faith colleagues tend to focus their spirituality. Perhaps religion is the exploration of personal spirituality within a communal spiritual framework, but in some places comes across as the need to negate the self in the face of 
the dogmatic spiritual authority structure of the community, which might be why so many people nowadays are seeking something else. Indeed, it wasn't the negation of the self that spiritually moved many artists who visited the show, but the full expression of self, the connection of the full self with others. In a world in which patriarchal authority structures and dogma have ruled for so long, I do wonder now if the most successful faith communities moving forward will be the ones that celebrate everyone for who they are, not try to fit everyone into convenient boxes of acceptable or unacceptable, sinners or not. Faith communities that cause people to hide who they are or that condemn people for who they are are going to continually seem like they care more about power and control than about spirituality and connectedness. It was Clara Sims who first opened my mind to this when she appeared with Franciscan sister Joan Brown. Clara spoke clearly about religion having served empire for thousands of years, and that empire is fundamentally based on the exploitation of the earth. Similarly, Reverend Michael Ray Matthews challenged religious listeners to consider whether they are a prophet of the resistance or a chaplain of the empire. We spoke about the challenges of being a prophet of the resistance in a congregational setting and how religious leaders can support oppressive narratives or challenge them. And Reverend Michael Ray spoke not of patriarchy, but of the terror of white supremacy and of the intersection between race and religious narratives. With him, as with some other guests, we spoke about whether society is improving or not. Clara Sims certainly felt that since social structures were artificially created, the ones that are damaging could be reconstructed or, if necessary, removed entirely if they impede social progress or harm the world around us. One of the areas in which we are clearly seeing a decline is the environment. Sister Joan Brown said bluntly that following Aquinas, if we get creation wrong, we get God wrong. And she also quoted St. Augustine, who said that there are two books of nature. The primary one is the natural world, and the secondary one is scripture. Sister Jones said that the emptying out of pews and the greying of congregations shows that religion needs to catch up to where people are, which in part involves a more earth-centered spirituality. Todd Winwood spoke of the practical action steps that we could take on a local level with the idea of being a disciple of our watershed, and quoted Wendell Berry, who said, Do unto those downstream as you would have those upstream do unto you. As I mentioned earlier, Elder Kathy Sanchez spoke of Earth as mother since all life came from her. And Laura Pascas spoke of the necessary journey through grief and guilt into action, and also spoke of the need to dismantle or transform social structures that are fundamentally unhealthy for ourselves and the planet. She too spoke of unhealthy global structures like the concentration of wealth that was exactly tied with the diminishment of natural resources. David Dennedy Frank spoke of all creation being sacred. David Henkel spoke of the fusion of ecology and spirituality. And throughout these conversations, it became clear that for some people, religion was heavily grounded in this earth. And for other guests, it became clear that the truer reality for them was not of this world, but somewhere else, often in heaven or in some kind of redemption or enlightenment. And again, it's not my place to say which is right and which is wrong, but it has become clear from our guests so far that those who saw nature as an expression of divinity were more likely to try to protect it and to try to dismantle systems that polluted it. 
These discussions further motivated me in my own work to further explore the necessity of helping religious communities shift away from environmentalism, which often involves separation between humanity and the world around us, and instead shifting towards ecologism, which intimately connects us with all our surroundings. Again, communities that focused on environmentalism tended to be more traditional, and communities that focused on ecology tended to be more progressive. Not all our guests who spoke about God were religious leaders, it should be stated. For example, Ned Wolpin came to our show early on to discuss Nietzsche and his claim that God is dead. In that claim, Ned explained that Nietzsche didn't mean that there is no such thing as God, but that the master-slave relationship that led to a slave morality of religious ethics has now died. In another show, Ned described some of Plato's Republic and what we might mean when we talk about justice. And he explained how Greek thought said that it is impossible to transcend human society and that to be human is to be with others in a social organization. And I honestly found this an extremely refreshing perspective in a society that has become so radically individualized. Peter Pesic, also from St. John's College, spoke about the harmony of science and music from a philosophical perspective as well, and I really do want to thank St. John's College for providing our show with an extraordinary array of philosophers and thinkers. As I draw to a close this evening, I remember how Sophie Stone quoted Socrates by saying that the unexamined life is not worth living, and that I think is the purpose of this show to get us to stop and think, to dialogue and to learn, to reflect on our own biases and assumptions, to fully see the other in those who hold differing views to our, to our own. Only months before his death, Rabbi Ben Morrow pondered, if personal soul-searching is what forms after being nourished, getting rid of fear, and being comfortable enough to be in a thinking position. He suggested that the role of religious communities should, therefore, be exactly that. To be places that nourish us, help us feel safe, and put us in a place where we can think for ourselves. It's been nearly six years since we first aired the pilot show, although, to be fair, there was a very long break between that show and a regular time slot. In that time, the world has seen much profound change, including a devastating pandemic, the effects of which I explored with many guests from Jack Conrad to Archbishop John Wester and others. My hope is that even through dark times that this show might have brought you some inspiration, some food for thought, and that our guests have illuminated your life. And I want to thank KSFR for agreeing to this show and for encouraging it. And I want to thank my Temple Beth Shalom community for valuing this extended dialogue and helping me find the space to shape it. And of course, I want to thank all my guests, some of whom I haven't mentioned this evening and some of whom I have. I want to thank them for teaching me, for challenging me and for learning with me. Perhaps this show is ultimately a reflection of my own personal theology, which has certainly developed as a result of this show. A theology in inspired by Martin Buber's concept of I-Thou. And in that theology, God is not to be described, but fleetingly encountered in moments of intimacy. And revelation is not prescriptive, but empowering and affirming. In the months and years to come, we do not know how the world will change. But we do know that whatever happens, deep questions of meaning will remain. And those questions will hopefully lead us to protect the vulnerable, 
to cherish life and to help us be the best selves we can be. You've been listening to the 100th show of Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Until next time, keep searching.